It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Any of you guys familiar with the old movie Smokey and the Bandit? Burt Reynolds, who was Keith Hernandez before there was Keith Hernandez, is a bootlegger with a cool Trans Am and a CB radio goes by the name of Bandit. And he's got to get to and from Atlanta with a crap ton of Coors beer before the clock runs out and before old Johnny Law throws him in the pokey. None of that translates to this podcast, really. But the thought that the Mets have a deadline to beat and a bounty to hunt, that gives the Mets in the morning house band some time off here at the top. Jerry Reed, no relation to ex-Mets Jeremy or Addison Reed, he'll walk you in this particular episode. He's bound and down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can be done? Are we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound just like a bandit run. Breaker Breaker 1-9, this is Podcast Dork Boy. I need a 20 on the Mets progress now. How are you guys liking my Deep South CB radio accent so far? Pretty good, right? You'd never know that I grew up in upstate New York. This is Josh Lewin, and the 20 on the Mets chase to steal that Coors from Atlanta, so to speak. Uh, well, Smokey, you got your ears on. Uh, 9-4 Mets win in Miami on Tuesday night, so they stay four games out. That's good. We'll get to the ins and outs of the game played Tuesday night in just a bit. Or else my name isn't Roscoe P. Coltrane, you scumbum. Uh, but we also have a Jacob deGrom update. A bunch of fun stuff on Pete Alonzo. And we may just bring the band out of the green room after all at the end. But uh, first, got to look at the remaining schedules and how they line up for these three NL East contenders. And I know technically the Mets are in a wild card chase as well. For me, too many teams, too many roadblocks to even go there right now. Maybe if the Reds and Cardinals and Padres all tank for a week altogether, I'll start paying closer attention. But let's focus in on the division right now. The Mets, they got two more at the Marlins. Then they got the Yankees, the Cardinals, the Phillies. They're at the Red Sox. They're at Milwaukee. They got the Marlins, and they finish at Atlanta. The Phillies, ahead of the Mets right now. One more at the Brewers. Then they're home for four against the Rockies, home for three against the Cubs. Got the three at the Mets, then it's, wow, three at home against the Orioles, four at home against the Pirates, and they finish at Atlanta and at Miami. The Braves, one more with the Nationals, then they get the Marlins at home, the Rockies at home, then they go get at Giants, but also at Diamondbacks, and at Padres, and then the Phillies and the Mets. So the Braves and Mets both have a rocky road towards the end. The Phillies are in the kiddie pool here. And don't get fooled by the math at the end of the year. When we get to that final weekend, first three days of October, if the Mets are three behind the Braves, well, yeah, they're still in it. But not only would they have to win all three in Atlanta, they'd have to win a fourth game in a row on the road as a one-game tiebreak. And that is if the Phillies don't handle their business and hurdle the both of them by then. If the Mets are two back going into the final weekend, they still would need to win three straight. 
win two out of three, and all that does is get you one game off the pace at the buzzer. So really the number here is one. The Mets need to be one game behind Atlanta or even with Atlanta before that final series begins, and they need the Phillies to slow down, which they did Tuesday night. They got walloped in Milwaukee. So it does make winning these games here in Miami really important because to get to within one of Atlanta by the end of September, you're probably... Uh, Not going to do that with Phillies, Red Sox, Brewers leading up to that while Atlanta's playing the Rockies and Arizona. So in Miami Tuesday night, before the game, we got news on Jacob deGrom, who hasn't thrown a single pitch for the Mets since July the 7th. Sandy Alderson got cornered by the media and uh, was able to tell him a little bit of what's going on, that deGrom has actually been sidelined with a sprain of the UCL in his elbow, but that injury is healed. The ligament is perfectly intact based on the MRIs and clinical evaluations and all that. Uh, It was the first time yesterday that DeGrom's injury had been termed a sprain because before it was right elbow inflammation. So there were reporters, understandably, that got a little bit up in arms, like, what what does this really mean? Sandy went out of his way to say that DeGrom's return, it's still very hopeful, but very much up in the air. He also wanted to make sure there are no weird headlines in the paper today speculating about the end of the world. Personal therapist used to yell that. Yeah, but look, somebody goes out with a with a headline that it's a partial tear. Right. That's what, you know, uh, a bruise is. A bruise is a partial tear of the muscle, okay? So don't, you know, let's not go out there and, and uh, um, you know, write as if this is anything new. It's not. Okay, and it's it's a very low grade thing that has resolved itself. So, so, so sometimes so. teams say sprain, and then next thing you know, it's Tommy John. But that seems like it's not the case here. It, um, it has resolved Look, itself I just already. I just told you that the, the ligament is perfectly intact at this right. point. So whatever uh, condition existed before, it's resolved itself, and that's one of the reasons that he didn't pitch for a period of time. All right, so there's the president of baseball operations slash de facto GM. Uh, the return of Noah Syndergaard is also no sure thing right now. Noah's progress recently slowed by his recent positive test for COVID. He didn't make the trip to Miami, so he's going to throw in New York either today or Thursday. All right, so all that was pregame. In-game, it was Carlos Carrasco against Edward Cabrera, and the runs began to rain down virtually right away. Remember when the Mets could never score in first innings? That is an old scouting report. First, a walk to Francisco Lindor, then up came Pete Alonso, sitting on 99 career home runs. Cabrera's pitch. Alonso trails this one in the air, deep to left center field. This one's going to go. It is gone. A home run. There's number 100 in the career of Pete Alonso. It has taken him only 347 major league games to hit 100 homers. He is the second fastest in Major League history to get there. He points up to the sky as he approaches home plate. And in the same ballpark that Alonzo hit his first, he's hit his 100th. And the Mets take a 2-0 lead. Wayne Randazzo with the call on WCBS Radio. Number 100, down come the balloons, the confetti cannons fire. We love celebrating round numbers, do we not? I mean, also in this game, Lindor drew his 329th career walk. Michael Conforto stroked his 460th career single. Did we play this sound effect for them? We did not. Pete's 100th career home run came in his 347th big league game, so he's the second fastest player ever behind Ryan Howard to reach the hundo. You've heard the kids say hundo P. This is now hundo Pete. 
Congrats to Pete Alonso, already my favorite Mets first baseman ever behind Keith Hernandez and John Olerud. I'm going to rabbit hole you here for just a couple minutes, if you don't mind. John Olerud, only three years of service with the Mets, late 90s, but what a three years they were. In 1998, team record for batting average, team record for OBP. He missed only 10 games in the three years he played with the Mets. Game four of the 99 NLDS facing elimination. He had the go-ahead two-run single in the bottom of the eighth. Howie Rose has called Olerud maybe the most underrated player the Mets have ever had, and I think I agree with that. Two players hold the single-season batting records for more than one franchise, Rogers Hornsby with the Cardinals, the Braves, and the Cubs. Then we have John Olerud, who's got the Blue Jays' mark at 363, did that in 93, then he set the Mets' record five years later. You look around, I mean, the Orioles have very few high-average hitters in their franchise history. The Mets are very similar to that. Shea Stadium, of course, was always a tough place to hit for average, whether it was the the lights or the hitting background or whatever. It just was not a park conducive to anything but strikeouts and lower batting averages. Only eight Mets have hit 320. Only 36, actually 37 now, have hit 300. Olerud's 354, that's 14 points better than Cleon Jones's 340 in 1969. That had been the standard. So, Olerud had those two MVP-type seasons that are well outside his career norms. I'll give you that. He was always a consistent, excellent player with a high OBP. But he hit 300 only two other times and barely doing that. He hit 302 one year, 300 in another. And yeah, he got some unusually high BABIPs the two years it really worked out for him with the Mets. But whether it was a little bit of luck or just the fact that he fit right in, the former Washington State Cougar, one of my favorite all-time Mets. And if you look at wins above replacement, courtesy of Baseball Reference, Olerud had a 7.6 in 98. Really could have been MVP that year. But of course, he never was going to be because it was 1998. And he had a 5.6 in 1999. Those are the first and third best seasons ever for a Mets first baseman with the 1984 of Keith Hernandez, the silver medalist in that mix. Alonzo's 2019 was a 5.5. That's pretty close to getting on the medal stand himself. And he's on track for around a 4.2, 4.3 or something like that this year. You know how many times a Mets everyday first baseman has had a wins above replacement value of 1 or 0 or less than 0? 25. 25 of 60 seasons. Their everyday first baseman has been average at best and sometimes just plain El Stinko. Even the beloved Ed Cranepool averaged a 0.4 War, first seven years he had the job. The guy I thought was the coolest Met ever back when I was 10, Willie Montanez, was a negative two. He cost the Mets two runs in 1979. That's how good he was. Eddie Murray was a one. David Segui was a negative one. Jason Phillips and Doug Mitkevich were ones. And for a couple of years, so were Ike Davis and Carlos Delgado. In 2016, the last time the Mets made the playoffs, their first baseman that year combined were a minus one with James Loney being the best of the bunch at zero. My point here, let's really appreciate the polar bear because it's Alonzo, it's Keith, it's Olerud. You could throw Dave Magadan in there as the only Mets first baseman, really, who have had staying power major value in the history of the franchise. All right, let's get back on the on-ramp now. When last we left you, it was 2 nothing Mets in the top of the first And for some reason, there was a giant cinnamon toast crunch guy sitting behind home plate in full view of the camera. Wackiest nonsense we've seen in a while, and we have seen a lot of wacky nonsense. Marlon's man is usually plenty, 
but what appeared to be a giant square piece of cereal with eyeballs was just sitting there leering at us as we watched on television. And I felt myself channeling my inner Ron Burgundy in Anchorman when Baxter the dog had just eaten the giant wheel of cheese. And Ron said, I'm I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. I say rock on, one giant square of Cinnamon Toast Crunch cereal guy. I look forward to your next creation, whether it be a Fruity Pebble, a Captain Crunch, or a Muselix. I just give you full marks for trying something new. What was I talking about? Oh, Miami would tie this game with uh, one in the first and one in the second. The RBI in the second from the pitcher who doubled off Carrasco. That very pitcher, Edward Cabrera, would then melt down in spectacular, almost Chernobyl-like fashion. The Mets just had to stand there, and they grabbed the lead back in the top of the third. After a strikeout of Carrasco, Cabrera did this. Walk, walk, walk. RBI hit by pitch, RBI hit by pitch. And Don Mattingly at that point no longer on Team Edward. The Marlins' bullpen was put in gear just seven outs into the game, and the Mets' rally did stall for a little bit. It was just 4-2 at that point. They couldn't crank out any more runs in that inning. And sure enough, the fish came right back to tie the thing up 4-4 after four. The Mets' totals at this point, four runs, two hits, three errors. Villar, Lindor, McNeil, three errors in the first four innings in a critical game. Arg, says Charlie Brown. But the Marlins were eager to prop up the Mets' chances in this one. A seven-pitch at bat and a Jeff McNeil single to left center. Pilar moves him over with a grounder to the right side. Mazika reaches on an error. Dom Smith, a seven-pitch walk, pinch hitting. Then Villar chops a double play ball to Jazz Chisholm, who just flat clanks it. The Marlins get no outs, and the Mets take a 5-4 lead. So, updating the line score at this point, the Mets 5-3-3. The Marlins 4-7-2. Not exactly a crisp apple of a ball game. It's more like a mushy pear. The number of sighs on the SNY broadcast by Keith had to have been 90 at this point. But then, there was Lindor serving a sinker from reliever Zach Pop into left. And that is worthy of our celebration sound again. Here's what it sounded like on the actual radio. Aces loaded, one out, a run is in. Mets lead 5-4, the pitch. Lindor lines to left center. That's a base hit. Scoring from third, Mazika. Smith around third. He comes home. Throw goes to third. Villar returns to second. Lindor has a two-run single, and the Mets have taken a 7-4 lead. Thanks again to WCBS. RBIs 45 and 46 this year for Mr. Smile. The Mets ahead now 7-4. Carrasco out of the game now. Final line on him. Five innings, seven hits, four runs. Just one of them earned. One walk. Four strikeouts, lowers his Mets ERA to 588. He's in position for his first ever National League win. Quick comment on starting pitching. So fragile, and so often it comes down to health, as we have learned this year. I think these days you measure a team's season-long viability by how good their 7, 8, and 9 starters are and how good their 10, 11, 12 bullpen guys are, because chances are you're turning to these guys at some point down the line. Joel Sherman once wrote in the Post, Elbows are like stemware in an earthquake, more likely to shatter than not. And if you use that analogy, for whatever reason, the Mets have been camped out these last few years right on the San Andreas Fault. Last couple of years, I was in the radio booth. I saw Josh Edgen, Zach Wheeler, Stephen Matz, DeGrom, Harvey, Hefner, Syndergaard, all of them needing the UCL replacement surgery known to the masses as Tommy John. This year, of course, DeGrom has made only those dozen or so starts. Syndergaard has made zero. Carrasco has made eight. 
The Mets have won two World Series, right? I mean, one was considered a miracle, the other considered a fait accompli. But you can't tell me it wasn't the starting pitching that didn't make those two World Series happen. And for all the teeth gnashing about how the Mets have only two World Series wins in their 60 seasons, by the way, in that time, I just got to point this out, that's the same number that's been won by the Pirates, the Tigers, the Twins, the Phillies. Five teams have won fewer than that, like the White Sox and the Cubs. A lot of them obviously have won none at all. And I remember what Steve Ketman wrote in his book about Sandy Alderson. If only the Mets could see themselves as just another team, free to rise and fall like any other club, their record of accomplishment would balance between infamy and glory, some rapture, some heartbreak. But of course, that's never been the case. We judge things in New York by how many championships you've won. And in the last 60 years, it's been one for the Jets, two for the Mets, one for the Rangers. And I know with some of you, those are your teams, and that's not a lot of ticker tape to uh, be throwing around if they still have ticker tape parades. Anyway, the uh, the lefty who grew up right in the middle of the Smokey and the Bandit route from Atlanta to Texarkana and back, Aaron Loop, a perfect sixth inning. Trevor May, a scoreless seventh. Mets get an insurance run in the eighth when J.D. Davis knocks in Mazika. Davis with that pinch hit, getting a season batting average back up to 298. We were just talking about nice round numbers. Here's hoping Davis gets back to 300. Hey, you want one more insurance run? Sure. How about another home run for Alonzo? Second of the game, 32nd of the season, number 101 in his brief big league career. Could he carry this team over the mountain like Cespedes did in 2015? We've all been thinking that guy is going to be Baez. Maybe it's a guy the Mets have had all along. Maybe it's the polar bear. 9-4 to four Mets the final. They get to 70-69. and 69. They gain a game on Philly. They stay within four of Atlanta. After the game, we heard from Peter Alonzo. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's truly a blessing. And to be able to get to those numbers as, as quickly as I did, it's, um, it's, it's truly a blessing. But also there's a lot of hard work that's, that's been put in basically throughout my entire life. And, um, and I, I'm just really blessed uh, to have this opportunity and to be able to perform at an extremely high level. And um, there's, there's so many people that have been in my life that I, I'm just so thankful for, family, friends, coaches, teammates. Um, and w- without those people having a, such a positive influence on me, it, it, like for me to be able to perform like this uh, consistently wouldn't be able to happen. So I just want to say thank you to everybody in, in my life that's, that's had a positive impact on me. I'm really appreciative and um yeah it's 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 awesome. So hopefully get the two, three, four, five, six hundred more. All right. So here's the deal for the Mets. Four games back with twenty three to go, including the last three against the team they're chasing. Like the song says, they got a long way to go and a short time to get there. But come on now. Let's see that bandit run. Tomorrow, the Bandit's going to run at 6.40 Eastern Time on SNY or WCBS Radio. Rich Hill, 3.92 ERA between Tampa Bay and New York this year against the young, strong Sandy Alcantara. He's 8-13 despite a 3.36 ERA. And the game just played last night, by the way. First one of the 13 this year between the Mets and Marlins where someone won it by more than four runs. Mets win it by five, nine to four. Music's up. That means we gotta go. And here they are. We we knew we'd see them at some point. The Mets in the Morning House Band, lest we forget. On the keyboards, it's Anthony Swarzak. Slapping the bass, it's Joe McEwing. The horn section is Frank Tavares. And kicking down that drum beat, it is Vince. 
Coleman. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to you, band. Thanks to everybody for hanging on in there. We'll talk to you again tomorrow as part of the Mets in the Morning podcast. Bye-bye. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.